Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every single Saturday at 10 o'clock in the morning. I am one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from Vienna, Austria. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, who's over there in Toronto. David, sir, how goes it? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. Uh, no complaints. The weather has been beautiful, enjoying the outdoors. The economy is slowly reopening so we can start to do things. I went to my first patio the other day and enjoyed uh, one or two alcoholic beverages under the sun. It was uh, it was very nice. It's It feels nice to be moving in that direction. I know not everywhere um, is on that trajectory, but uh, at least where I am, things are moving in the direction of opening up. And uh, yeah. Big, big positive. Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think this is like the hottest time of the year in most places, at least in the Western Northern Hemisphere. This kind of stuff. So definitely, I've been sweating for the first time in my own apartment. Uh, we do not have air conditioning in these parts, um, unfortunately. Only I think only the very, very new buildings where I live in Vienna do have air conditioning. So I, I have found myself sweating every now and then, and it's not just because of the chili con carne. Are you able in Austria? Are you able to get like a window shaker, uh, AC unit, like one of those that plug you into can, the window? You can, but our windows no. are like my window. I'm looking at right now is like six feet high, so it's not a normal oh, so no. window. It's like <laughs> one of these old school things. And the thing, the thing that's yeah. interesting about where we live as well. I don't know if it's Vienna or I don't know. It's because it's the city. Not sure. But we don't need mosquito nets either because there are really no mosquitoes or really any bugs. So during summer, most of the time, we just leave the windows fully open, like basically all night and almost all the time. Oh, yeah. that helps. So That's good. I've kept my windows open yeah, we can't really uh, do most that here. of the time. And uh, all I've been doing the last two days is building some Ikea furniture. So uh, I feel feel like a man. You know, you really feel like you, you, you pump up your testosterone when you complete these huge Ikea projects. I think it's great. Yeah, you never never feel more manlier than when you have that IKEA Allen key in your hand and you, you finish completing uh, an office desk that you needed a degree in algebra to, <laughs> to complete. Oh, and I, I didn't even have the Allen wrench. I had the Allen wrench extender, so I felt mightily powerful. Oh, wow! That's a. Do you, you go out on your own and buy that, or did it come with the? Ah, the this kit? one came with it, so um, you know I didn't have to Ooh, buy it myself. IKEA stepping yeah, up their they did game. A great job there, and that was for a nice new long nice. kitchen table that's way too big for our apartment, but that's another convo. Um, so yeah, David, plenty of awesome <laughs> stuff on the show. Um, I know that you did a great job last week. I was out on vacation, uh, bumping between uh, Slovenia and Venice, and and being in uh, on the beach in Italy. So thank you so much for. Uh, grabbing the reins i think you did a pretty good job as an awesome interview and uh, i liked your um you know talk radio style rant uh, i wonder what uh, what uh, <laughs> that was pretty interesting it's always cool to do monologues right it's weird yeah you don't i mean you and i are both t- used to talking for a long time but we're used to talking with the feedback loop of somebody else like nodding along or interjecting or agreeing or even disagreeing and so yeah it was uh it was a it was weird at first but i thought it went all right happy that uh we got some good feedback on that from listeners so um yeah yeah <laughs> i had the reins to myself and i didn't i didn't crash you the did car, not so you did not crash the car but, that. but don't worry i didn't let you go go full out on your own i, I still helped out a little bit with the editing so <laughs> i had to, yes, I had to make sure true. you stayed in the wheelhouse um so yeah it was yeah for him <laughs> For anyone who li- for anyone who followed the episode of Call Her Daddy or listens to that podcast, uh, I'm definitely the Sophia in this relationship. I got I got the IP. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, we've we've got uh, that was a great show. And again, you can go back and we put all the videos on YouTube of the interviews that we do. So all of that is on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. You guys can easily find that. We also put them up on Instagram. And Facebook, uh, we're trying to figure out where all you guys are, all the listeners. It's tough. It's a tough social media world out there. You know, it's competition. That's what it's all about. 
So everything's on consumerchoiceradio.com. You can always subscribe. If you're just hearing this for the first time, you can subscribe in wherever you get your podcasts. So I think, David, you've teed up a great interview for us. Uh, you're able to um, actually get one of the hardest men to pin down, I believe, in the global media and political sphere. And uh, we've got a nice little interview we got queued up. So you want to go ahead and give that intro? Yeah, yeah. So this week's guest is Bjorn Lomberg. Um, if you're a longtime listener of the show, I've mentioned him several times, uh, kind of foundational for me in terms of my own political journey. Um, as you said, yeah, a difficult man to pin down for an interview because he's just so busy all the time. Um, right. It's funny for our listeners right after our interview, he was on ABC news and I think he's basically spent the entire day, um, in his office. Uh, zooming or skyping in for interviews so happy we 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 got him on the program he's just finished uh his recent book false alarm which we get to chat about and so without further ado we'll get jamie to run that clip and play that interview It is, it is a great pleasure to introduce our next guest for Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Bjorn Lomberg is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, the author of the best-selling The Skeptical Environmentalist, and most recently, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, David. It's great to be here. Great, great. So you've written this new book, False Alarm. Uh, it's a very splashy headline. Uh, I'm sure that you've gotten a lot of um, intrigue based on that. But before we go into the specifics of climate policies, I want to ask the, 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 the first question is, when it comes to climate change, climate change is real, and it's something that we have to consider or be concerned about, or is it something that's not real? And it's, and, and it's something that we can completely disregard. So David, it's very clearly a real problem. It's human made and it is something that we should fix. But, and that's the main point here, we should not be so alarmed about it as we are. Uh, you know, if, if you mm -hmm. look at, uh, if we remember back before Corona, uh, you know, kids across the world were terrified about this. Uh, Washington Post survey shows that 57% of all kids are alarmed about climate change. And if you ask people around the world, so a survey of, from YouGov of uh, 28 nations showed that on average, almost half the world's population now believes that global warming will likely lead to the extinction of the human race. Look, that's just way beyond being reasonably concerned about a problem. That is being falsely alarmed. So we honestly believe that the world is gonna end, whereas what the UN Climate Panel actually tells us, so the guys who write the gold standard report for the UN for everyone on what's climate about, they tell us that by about 50 years from now, in the 2070s, the average impact of climate change will be negative and it will be equivalent to each one of us losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. Remember by the 2070s, each person is estimated to be about 2.63 times as rich as we are today. It's almost three times richer. And because of global warming, instead of being 2.63 times richer, we'll only be 2.56 times richer. Now, that is a problem. It is just not the end of the world, and it's certainly not justified to believe we're all going to die. And Bjorn, one thing that uh, I noticed in your book is you use a lot of models and cost-benefit analysis, which is something very normal for every large problem that we're trying to solve collectively. But it seems in the climate debate on the climate crisis, as, as, as it is called, it's never really taken into consideration. And even you're sometimes attacked for using that kind of model. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, if, I mean, first of all, it's because it gives the wrong answer, right? If, uh, if these global economic models showed us we should put everything and the kitchen sink into this in order to solve it because it would actually be a good deal, everyone would be quoting them. But the point is the cost-benefit analysis have been made, and they've mostly been 
uh, led by a guy called uh, William Nordhaus from Yale University, who actually got the Nobel Prize two years ago. He's the first climate economist to get the Nobel Prize. What he spent his career on doing and helped a lot of other people do is basically say, look, how much is it going to cost us to do climate policies, smart climate policies, and how much is it going to help us? And not surprisingly, what he finds is we should do some, but not everything. Uh, if you do a little bit, it's fairly cheap and it'll help a lot. If you do everything, it's going to be very expensive and it'll actually not help all that much more. That's why he finds there's a equilibrium, which most economists come out with. But he gets viciously attacked, and my book is to a large extent based on his findings, because it doesn't give the right answer. But of course, not liking the answer is not the same thing as not actually listening to it. It's the exact same thing that most climate alarmists tell us. You can't just ignore the climate science. No, absolutely we can't. The climate science tells us there's a real problem with global warming, but the climate economics also tells us very clearly while there's a big problem with climate, uh, there's also a big cost to trying to tackle it. We need to balance those two. That's unpopular, but it's necessary if we're actually gonna manage this. And, and can you maybe help walk our listeners through the magnitude of some of these costs in terms of the various climate policies? I mean, the, the Paris Accord comes to mind or any, any policies that are taken and what their impact is going to be and what the cost is going to be. Because when I read your work, I read through this and it's, I mean, for me, it's like, okay, well, the, the, the pros do not outweigh the cons and there are better pros that we can go after in terms of policies. But for most people, when we talk about climate change, they just think, well, we need to do every policy suggestion under the rainbow, because if we don't, we have 13 years uh, or, or whatever kind of big figure is thrown out there. But can you just walk us through what works, uh, what doesn't, what the costs are? Yeah, that, that's a great question, because as, as you rightly point out, David, we are constantly being told this is the end of the world. And then obviously, you're just going to throw everything at it. I mean, if this was a meteor hurtling towards Earth, we should just you know, send Bruce Willis up there and deal with it and give him all the money he could possibly use, right? But the reality is, this is a problem. This is like diabetes, something we need to fix and maintain and make smart choices on. But we also have to fix everything else, like the roads and the healthcare system with Corona and you know, the education system, all these other things. So to give you a, a brief answer, it is astounding. If you think back in 2015, the world agreed to the Paris Accord, which was essentially assuming to fix climate change. It's, a, it's the biggest treaty we've ever done. It's also the costliest treaty we've ever done. You would imagine somebody to actually analyze, so how much is this going to cost and how much is this going to do? The answer is no, they haven't. And for very obvious reasons, because it doesn't do very much and it costs a lot. So briefly, the impact, if you actually, if every nation actually does what they promised in the climate, uh, uh, the Paris Accord, uh, we don't, and we're nowhere near on track to that. And obviously Trump has you know, tried to pull the US out. But if you assume everyone tries to do this, the UN, uh, the guys who actually organized the meeting, so the UNFCCC, they actually once did this calculation. It came out with the uh, politically incorrect answer. That's why they've never done it again, but they found it how much will we actually reduce our emissions? It turns out that it's about 63 billion tons of CO2. Now, to most people, that doesn't mean anything. But just to give you a sense of proportion, if we're going to make the 1.5 degree target, we have to cut about 6,000 gigatons or billion tons of CO2. So we're literally promising with the Paris Agreement to reach 1% of that goal. And of course, we're not on track to even do that. So the Paris Agreement is a tiny bit of the way towards fixing climate change. However, so if you, if you translate that into uh, uh, temperature, it means that the temperature by the end of the century will be reduced by about 0.05 degrees. So that's not very much. It's a tiny bit, but not very much. The cost to the Paris Agreement, again, there's no official estimates, but there's lots of academically very valid studies. The best come from uh, Stanford Energy Modeling Forum, which brings together a lot of the best period energy economic models. What they find across the US, Europe, China, and a few other nations, and then it's scaled up to the rest of the world, is that the cost will be somewhere between one to two trillion dollars a year. So one to two percent of global GDP. So we're basically talking about spending an enormous amount of money, not the end of the world money, but enormous amount of money 
to do something that by uh, in 80 years, we can't tell the difference. Not surprisingly, it turns out that's not a good idea. If you do the cost benefit, every dollar spent will avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. That's a bad deal. And that's you know the point that I try to make. This is not rocket science, but it's just surprisingly how we don't want to hear this, uh, and, this message. And really quick on that note, just I've heard you talk about this, uh, the, where it's a dollar amount and then what the investment return is. Can you walk us through where, like something like investing in tuberculosis or what's the return on that? So for every dollar um, spent in the climate space with Paris, you said 11 cents is, is essentially the, the return or what we avoid. What are some other things that you've looked at in terms of social good where money can be spent, where that return is actually multiples higher? Yeah. So just to give a very brief sense, because to many people, this is an odd way to think about the world, uh, right? You, you think about it, we, you know, we buy something and then you get a chair or a house or some, a car. But obviously, if you're going to compare across a wide range of areas, we try to compare all the benefits that you get and add them up into a common denominator, which we usually use as money. So, you know, if you invest in Paris, uh, you're going to spend real money, you're going to spend dollars, but you're going to get benefits that means you'll lose less uh, uh, wetlands, you'll have slightly less strong hurricanes that'll have slightly less damage and so on. And if you try to add up all those benefits, that's how you get the 11 cents. Now, you can do that across a wide range of areas. That's actually what my think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus does. We work with more than 300 of the world's top economists, seven Nobel laureates, to try to look at where can you spend a dollar and do the most good. So obviously, I love your, your question. Basically, where could you otherwise spend it? Turns out you can spend it on a lot of other things. So on tuberculosis, for instance, uh, most people don't recognize that tuberculosis is the world's leading infectious disease killer. It's not HIV AIDS, certainly not corona yet but it is tuberculosis, this old, old disease. The reason why we don't hear about it is because we fixed it 100 years ago in the rich world. Uh, you know, people used to die from consumption all the time, but now almost nobody dies in the rich world, but lots of people still do in the third world. And it's very cheap and easy to fix. We estimate that for every dollar you spent on smart tuberculosis policies, you could do about $43 of social good. That's a fantastic investment. We actually also find if you invest in, uh, 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 um, sorry, um, oh, family planning, uh, then, uh, you know, then you could, because what, what that does, it does not only means that kids die less and they lose their moms less, but it also means you get slightly higher economic growth. Every dollar spent will produce $120 worth of social good. If you invest it in free trade, which is basically paying off rich Western farmers, which are the main ones uh, holding back free trade to get more free trade for the world, you could actually end up with $1 spent and delivering almost $2,000 of social good. Again, the point here is not to say that even if you can spend a dollar and do $3 worth of good, you should probably also do that. But you should certainly do the $43 before you do the $3. And you should certainly do it before you do the 11 cents. Uh, and honestly, you shouldn't do the 11 cents because you should just hand out the money instead and make people 10 times as happy. One thing that you mentioned in your book, Bjorn, is about you know, how economics is very central to this, and it's very important for thinking about solutions and how we price them out. And uh, in the Stiglitz review, which we can get into later, um, he does mention the fact that you know, there's, there's a view of climate scientists and that's something that I think a lot of us are, are kind of confused by. You know, what do the, quote, scientists say? Because it seems as if there's a lot of people who speak for them, but we don't necessarily hear, are they coming out with these solutions or is it more political? Well, I think the, the, the main reason why we have this confusion is because a lot of the stories that you hear about climate change are this relentless alarmist story. The end of the world is nigh. I give a lot of examples. But let me just take this one uh, uh Last year, uh, Washington Post and lots of papers across the nation and across the world led with this story. Because of global warming, 187 million people are going to have to relocate by the end of the century. And of course, not surprisingly, that very quickly became to 187 million people are going to die. They're going to drown. Right? And the idea is, very correctly, global warming leads to higher sea levels. Higher sea levels will inevitably mean that more people will be underwater and hence they'll have to move or they will drown. 
Now that seems really obvious unless you start, until you start realizing what this assumes is that over the next 80 years, nobody will do anything. So basically we'll just sit around, uh, watch the waves lap up over our knees and eventually our hips and eventually we'll either drown or have to move. But of course, in reality, we adapt. We put up dikes, for instance. You know, Holland has shown the way in that, and we know how to do that. So that very same study that showed 187 million people are going to die, or sorry, are going to have to move on if, if we do nothing, also said if we do something, that is, if we do what they assume will be the smart thing and it will be very, very cheap, we will not see 187 million people having to move, but we'll see about 300,000 people having to move. So one six hundredth of the number was the actual number. But think about which number made it into all the papers. Not surprisingly, the 187, because it's just so much more fun. And it sort of, you know, it speaks to everybody who wants to point, point out this is a big crisis. And climate is not alone in this. If you talk to, you know, teachers unions, they'll tell you, if you don't spend more money on schools, we're all going to, you know, we'll, our kids are not going to know how to function in a, in a world. Or, you know, uh, doctors are going to tell you, if you don't spend more on healthcare, we're all going to die kind of thing. Everybody makes this exaggeration. But the point is, it's so much easier to do with climate, and there's such a more relentless pace in making these statements that are not false per se, but they're simply incredibly misleading. And that's why there's a big disconnect between what most people think they hear, namely, if you read one story after another, 187 million people are going to drown, clearly you think this has to be one of the biggest problems in the world, compared to the actual outcome, which is a few hundred thousand people are going to have to move by the end of the century, just to give you a sense of proportion every year. Twice that number moves out of California. I think we'll be fine to be able to find 300,000 people moving over the next 80 years in the world. It simply is not that big of a problem once you do the actual math. But if you allow yourself to be convinced by these scare stories, clearly you're going to think this is the end of the world. And then you're willing to literally spend everything on climate. And so in regards to these alarmists, uh, there are always people, uh, otherwise very, very intelligent and, and forthright people who talk about tail risks and will maybe make the argument that, okay, this makes a lot of sense. However, there is a very, very small percentage chance that the worst of these predictions could come true and we need to be prepared for that. What is your response to that? I mean, I, I know from reading the book what some of the policy solutions are, but if you could explain to us, if, if, if the alarmists are, are right, and let's say there is a tail risk and it does come true, what would our solution be? Yes. So it's absolutely true that what I'm looking at and what Nordhaus and most of these economic models look at is sort of the average outcome. And people can say, and certainly do say, Ah, but what if we look at the very tail end risk of this? So, you know, everything goes wrong and we all die. Shouldn't we have done something? The problem with that argument is that's true for every possible thing that you can think about for the next hundred years. If we're talking about what should be our educational policy, what if our educational policy goes wrong and, you know, you can just make up a story and we end up making a, making a, a Hitler uh, you know, a guy who didn't get uh, do well in uh, in the school or something, or that we fail to 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 fix HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. We create a failed state uh, that leads you know throw in some bioterrorism and you're good to go. Everybody's going to die. You can come up with any number of conceivable scenarios, and you know a very obvious one that that's sort of right in front of you is how do we tackle Iraq? Oh, sorry, Iran uh, nuclear or uh, North Korea. The point is all of the things that we're doing today have certainly a non-zero risk to go incredibly badly wrong to the extent that humanity will be threatened by the end of the century. We don't normally say, all right, let's then throw everything at this because, and Nord has of course also addressed this. He says, what you end up with is that you have to spend an infinity of resources on every single area, which of course is impossible. That's how we deal with these things. We try to look at what's the most realistic outcome. And then we try to make some insurance for really, really bad stuff happening. Now, I'm not sure we have good insurance for either North Korea or Iran, but we do actually have fairly good insurance for climate because that is what's called geoengineering. So 
geoengineering is essentially uh, mimicking some natural causes like, for instance, volcanoes. Uh, back in 1991, there was a volcano in the Philippines that spewed up an enormous amount of uh, sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere, put out a layer of particulates around the, the Earth for about a year and a half. It cooled the planet about one degree Fahrenheit, about half degree centigrade for two years. So we know you can actually cool the planet. What scientists are suggesting, maybe we should try and think about doing this artificially. Just a, a, a sort of caveat. Nobody is suggesting we should do this now because we don't know how it would work and whether there'd be really bad side effects. But we are saying, let's look at this. Because if there really was something terrible lurking out in the shadows, this is the tail, in, uh, tail argument. Any climate policy, any realistic climate policy would be absolutely powerless to actually deal with it because we know realistic climate policies are not going to dramatically change temperatures before in half or a full century. Whereas geoengineering potentially can make these changes in weeks or even days. So the idea is to say, absolutely invest some in having this backup plan. But let's not make the argument that, hey, there might be something out there. Give me all your money. Let's not make that argument into saying, all right, then let's make the most extreme climate policies we can come up with, because then we should make the most extreme policies to North Korea, Iran, our education policy, our healthcare policy, and everything else you can come up with, which obviously is impossible. Uh, you mentioned geoengineering. You know, it makes me think of the Icelandic uh, volcano there a couple of years ago, all flights grounded. And yeah, the one kind... we can't pronounce. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm not even going to try. But we even have had our own experiment of grounding flights um, with the, the corona. We try not to say the full name because we might get downvoted on YouTube. But uh, with your book that just came out last week, again, the book is False Alarm. Uh, you guys can purchase it anywhere you can find online or your bookstores. Um, has anything changed from your, your thesis or your book um, with the coronavirus? Is, you know, has it changed your frame of mind or thinking or given you other examples, perhaps, that you could follow up with? Well, obviously, uh, since we've all been home and had a lot of time to think about this, uh, I, I've, I've certainly thought about how does this fit into what I'm talking about with my book. I had a, uh, a Saturday review, uh, review in Wall Street Journal on, on this particular topic. And, and I think uh, Corona really tells us two things. One is, if you think about what is most environmentalists telling us, they're saying, oh, fly less, drive less, you know, use less resources, you know, bike more to your work, that kind of stuff. It's all very well-intentioned, but of course, the point is, and that's what I say in the book, but Corona, I think, has very, very clearly pointed that out, is that even when we do all of that, it has virtually no impact. Remember, the whole world just acted as if we'd heard the environmentalist plea. We shut down the entire world. When China was the most shut down on April 17, China still emitted 78% of the emissions they normally emit. Why? Because we still have to live. We still have to heat our houses. We still have to do lots and lots of stuff. So the reality is that if anything, the coronavirus has shown this is not something that you solve by driving a little less and taking a few, 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 few flights. It's not to say that that's not a good idea. And, you know, if, if that rocks your boat, please do it. But this is not what's going to solve global warming. What is going to solve global warming is much better technology, but not this, don't do this, don't do that. The coronavirus, I think, has also led us one other place. So look at what's happened. We've spent an enormous amount of resources. So the economists talk about we have the 90% world. We've spent 10% of our, of our wealth in order to fix the coronavirus. At the same time, we also look at how much have we saved? Well, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of conversation about that. And certainly we've saved a lot of people from not dying. But as we're coming out of this crisis and realizing, wow, this has really cost us a lot. I think it's also time for us to start waking up. We didn't have this conversation when we first embarked on the shutdowns, but actually asking how much should we shut down compared to how much is the value of saving extra, especially old people's lives. This feels very, very wrong to ask, but we do it all the time. Remember, we don't actually save everyone that we can. One good example is in the US, about 40,000 people die each year on the roads. We know how to make nobody die on the roads. That's just set the speed limit at three miles an hour. But we don't do that because we actually make an active decision of saying, look, we'd like not too many people die, but we'd actually also like to be able to get home in the evening. And we make those trade-offs 
we, and I hope the coronavirus will also help us start having that conversation because obviously that's the same conversation we need on climate change. And, and just to, to move into, uh, we alluded to this earlier, the, the Stiglitz Review, um, you wrote a very well, uh, well-drafted response to Stiglitz. Um, I won't try and, and, and reiterate his critique of you, but if you wouldn't mind just in your own words explaining um, his critique of you and maybe where he was being disingenuous. I mean, from my point of view, it just seemed like he was playing tennis without the net um, mm. in his critique of your book. But yeah, if you could walk our listeners through that, that critique of you and, and your response, um, and, and we'll also include in our show notes the link to your um, your response, because I just thought it was, it was beautiful. Thank you. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough to have New York Times actually review my book, uh, but they also very, very clearly decided we want a bad review. I mean, actually the commissioning editor uh, on, on Twitter uh, said, I think he probably regrets that now, uh, admitted that he and uh, Stiglitz had arranged that this was going to be a bad review even before he had read the book. Uh, and, and I think the, the review obviously uh, looks like he still hasn't read the, the book. Now, obviously, any author who gets a bad review are going to rant about all this, that, and the other. Uh, so I'm not going to go into that as much. There's, uh, there, you know, there's basically 12 points that you make, and all 12 of them are simply false. They're not just, you know, oh, different opinions. They're simply academically false. And, and I think that comes down to, and, and you, know, you can go through it, most of it is very, very boring. He says Nordhaus uh, uh, has estimated an incredibly high cost of uh, 1.5 degrees uh, uh, temperature rise uh, to limit uh, temperatures to 1.5 degrees. No, he hasn't because he actually explicitly says that's not possible. The fact that Stiglitz doesn't seem to know this or care about it, indicates that this is a whole other conversation. And I think that's really where this is about. He ends up the, uh, the, uh, his review, I think, very honestly saying, it would be terrible if anyone were to actually think that this book had any real merit, because then people would change their behavior. And I think that's what this is about. A lot of people and a lot of alarmists are very, very terrified of us having a sensible conversation about climate change, because then obviously we stop saying sure to everything you say, they say, but instead start saying, I'm sorry, what's the cost? What are the benefits? Let's look at this proposal and actually make sound, sensible and cost effective climate policies. And I think that is really how you should read this review, that Stiglitz, uh, as a defender of, if you will, sort of the normal climate alarmism is simply throwing everything at me and see what sticks. And unfortunately, he's not all that well informed. And, and so he, he basically end up throwing a lot of false stuff on there. But this is not what that conversation is about. It's really about telling all good-minded people who read the New York Times, do not read this book. Thou shalt not read this book. And, and you know, a lot of people have said, and I, I, I certainly know that's true, but I also think it has some validity. If the New York Times tells you, you shouldn't read this book, maybe you should. That's a very good point. I think most telling in his critique there is he says, you know, we have to listen to the scientists. Bjorn is not listening to the scientists. By the way, I, as an economist, I wrote the uh, second assessment of the IPCC. So there's uh, <laughs> no equivalent Yes, there. yes. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, a good fun, fun fact, he doesn't know what IPCC stands for either. Uh, so he, he, he cites that wrongly in his Nobel speech. Oh, there you go. Well, yeah, immediately when I, when I read his review, I finished reading it. And obviously, I was like, oh, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, but then at the same time, I was in, in the back of my head going, there are going to be so many people who read this review who will now have to buy this book to check it out, <laughs> almost as, yeah. in the, at, at, as an act of rebellion. So um, just, just fantastic uh, to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, one short aside, The Skeptical Environmentalist was one of the kind of first um, – first books that was given to me by my dad as I started when I think I was maybe 13 or 14 when I first read it it oh was my God, a, that's a very early age for that yeah <laughs> yeah um but it was and, and what's what's great for our listeners is we've talked about that type of approach to political problems of looking at the costs and benefits and not kind of not falling into the trap of doing things for 
the the sake of symbols or symbolism or because it makes us feel good actually getting down to the nitty gritty of what does this cost us and what do we get in return um so on a personal note i really appreciate work it's been foundational for me in terms of um my political experience our listeners have, have certainly heard me talk about that quite a bit so it's a great uh, opportunity for us to have you on the show and and we really appreciate you joining us Oh, and, and thank you very much. Look, I, I'm really, really excited that this has been helpful for you. Uh, but obviously, I'm also thinking, uh, yeah, I, I don't understand how this is not obvious that we have this conversation in the world. Uh, and and I, I, I mean, I know why, because it creates a lot of uncomfortable truths for a lot of people. Uh, I, I was once debating uh, the Danish finance minister, uh, and she, she told me, you, you can't just come here with all your economics because what does that leave space for us politicians to make decisions? And I was like, well, maybe that's exactly the point. You know, it makes it sure you can still decide between really good policies, but you can't honestly and objectively make really bad policy decisions. And of course, polit politics is very much about making bad policies because they play well in the media or because they buy you those crucial votes that you need or something else. And, and so I see cost benefit and the whole conversation and where you spend money as a way to constrain policy to hopefully help make the world a little bit better. That's wonderful. Yeah, you heard it here, folks. Add to cart, false alarm. Bjorn, thanks so much for taking your time, and uh, best of luck with rolling out the book. Thank you, guys. So, yes, great interview with Bjorn. Awesome guy. Uh, truly an inspiration because he's someone who I think he, he adheres so much to his principles. Uh, he always backs it up. He's got the facts. He's got the data. He, he's got all the citations. No wonder he is so hated amongst the modern environmentalist movement, or the green movement, should I say. And the thing that, the thing that I love the most, and we got a little bit into this with the conversation about Stiglitz, is that's not the first time that someone has kind of tried to line by line critique his work. And the best thing is, is that every time someone does that, he responds with a line by line response to the critique. And so... There's never, I mean, this happens way too often in public discourse is people talking past each other, especially on Twitter, right? You have like 140 characters and somebody makes an argument and then somebody snipes back with something that's like half related to the original critique. But he goes through line by line and, and says, okay, this is where the miscommunication is. This is wrong. This is actually just flat out false. Uh, this needed to be worded better. Um, and I think that that's really important when we're talking about something so pivotal in public policy, like climate change policy, you, the, the, when we talk past each other and we don't actually address the arguments and the points of, um, of people on both sides, I mean, it's a huge disservice because you either waste a lot of money in the process or you miss trying to fix uh, a serious issue in the process. And so uh, it was great to have him on the show. Super pleased. Hopefully we'll have him back. Uh, consider him a friend of the show. Um, we'll have him back at a later date, probably to talk about some other uh, cost benefit analysis or, or big spending plan that he can evaluate and break down for, for our listeners. And one of the things that I did ask him about, and you know, he mentions probably throughout every single chapter of his book, is the role of the media in covering a lot of this. And I think now that I have my Bjorn Lumberg glasses on, uh, what a surprise when I wake up, I flip open my New York Times app, and I see the article, The Great Climate Migration Has Begun. Research suggests climate change will cause humans to move in the millions. The Times Magazine partnered with ProPublica and data scientists to understand how more of the world is becoming a hot zone. Okay. Well, and this is... Yeah, this is the thing about that is that in the millions can sound severe and pretty grand, but you have to put that in the perspective of what already, like, what's the reference point? What's the so ordinary? Here's, here's the, the main statistic. Today, 1% of the world is a barely livable hot zone. By the year 2070, that number could go up to 19%. That, it's, that and just, it's just doesn't sound... It just basically is a lot of the deserts in Africa and Arabia. So a lot of deserts will be really hot. 
Yeah, I guess, I I guess mean, that's the the conclusion of this the this huge. What thing. major metropolitan cities are? I mean, one let's say a million people or one point five million people need to move between now and twenty seventy. That's not a, that's not a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, and in twenty seventy, the world population is probably going to be over ten billion. And this conflates a lot with uh, something that Bjorn also mentioned in the book is you know, everything is now being tied to climate change, things that we never thought possible. You know, there's flooding down the street, or you have this, or even a tornado, apparently, which has nothing to do with climate change, has everything to do with the pressures and the air. Uh, All of a sudden, now that is also climate change, so that every single disaster that's caused by some force of nature becomes attributed to the climate change thing. And you could almost make the parallel that we have this right now with the um, Carol Baskins virus in that if if you've ever had COVID and you die at any point, it will therefore be determined that you have died of COVID. I don't know if that's 100% true. I've been reading that in a couple articles. Seems right. I don't know, man. Yeah, it it seems that some of the numbers are tricky where where people are are getting cited as, as COVID deaths regardless of what the actual cause of death was. Um, so, I mean, on that note of climate, I forget who it was, but Bjorn shared it on Facebook and it was someone reputable. Um, and it basically said like the, 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 the Carol Baskin virus shows us that now more than ever, we need to heal our planet and our climate. And it's like, Lord, what? Like insert the what gif with the the guy with the face all squinty like what that doesn't make any sense at all um they, they're completely unrelated to each other uh and and we didn't really get into chatting about this and i kind of wish we did with bjorn it's like some people are saying see we can reduce global emissions we can uh drastically curtail the amount that people drive. And I mean, I think the, the best estimate is we yet at its most aggressive, we reduced emissions by 15 to 20%, but we had to put people on house arrest for three months to do it. And all these people lost their jobs. Oh yeah. yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Like if anything, it shows that we're going to have to think more seriously about uh, at, at, about adapting, and then if the the naysayers are right about what our safety level 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 levers are uh, in terms of things like geoengineering or uh, other changes that we can make, if things are actually progressing as as negatively as the naysayers say they are, um, and so that's something that always gets ignored because people be like, well, capitalism is the problem. Now you can see that like we've reduced emissions by so much. And it's like, guys, everyone is on the government payroll right now. Unemployment is at great depression levels. <laughs> Many businesses are not coming back. Like if, the, if we were to do this for a year, it would be an absolute nightmare of epic proportions. And we would still probably only reduce emissions by no more than 25%. So there's got to be a different way. Like we're not going to electric car our way out of this problem. There has to be a bigger or better solution beyond um, beyond what we're kind of doing in, in terms of tinkering at the margins. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's... It's uh, it's very complicated to understand, you know, where all this is, specifically because the pandemic has kind of uh, controlled the room of, of kind of all political will at the moment. And we don't know what kind of seeds are being planted now for the green movement <laughs> you like that um, in terms of what everything that we've done throughout the pandemic, what will therefore be used as an argument later down the line? It's like, oh, well, we're very willing to shut down all businesses, to stop flights, uh, to cut down on, on basically everything in order to stop this pandemic. What's it to say that we can't do that for the other pandemic that is human beings on this earth and the impact that they have? And I think that's very scary for 
for definitely a lot of people who are living in really the most vulnerable situations because they're the ones who are going to be the most impacted. It's not most of the middle class organizers from Greenpeace and uh, any of these other organizations that are going to be hit. It's mostly those in lower income communities, those who don't have the luxury of being able to buy other products or able to, you know, move to some other place. You know, they're the ones that are actually going to get impacted by any of these uh, Green New Deal things or, I don't know, that kind of stuff is, uh, it's frightening. Um, And, you know, I feel for a lot of people that will be very hurt by this. And, you know, if anyone thinks that putting uh, 30%, 40% of the population on unemployment um, to get our, our skies a bit clearer is a solution that we can amplify in order to stop anthropogenic climate change in the future, uh, they got another thing coming. I don't think people are going to stand for that. You know, I think people want smarter solutions. They want intellectual solutions, things that, as Bjorn talked about, you know, are tested and tried and make economic sense because this other stuff doesn't. And I think that's why I appreciate so much of what Bjorn does and why his book is awesome. And you guys should add to cart. Uh, We'll add it uh, here in the show notes right here on the uh, podcast site. And the thing is, is that we know, we know that when, push comes to shove, the answer to that question that you just posed is, do people think that it's worth it, is almost always no. When you poll people, oh, do you want to do more for the environment? Oh, the overwhelming majority of people say yes. And then when you ask, okay, would you pay an extra $100 to do more for the environment? Then it wanes off, would you pay $200? And then the majority, no, I don't want to pay $200 more to protect the environment. And so you have this gap between intentions and the economics of the situation. And so I think a lot of these proposed solutions, they weigh too heavily on that first figure and completely ignore the second. And that's why what Bjorn does is so interesting is because it allows for you to unblur the lines in between the two and say, okay, well, if you're willing to spend $100, what can we spend $100 on? Well, we could spend $100 on free trade and get $400,000 worth of benefit. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Let's do that. Or we could spend $100 on tuberculosis and get $100,000 worth of net benefit and things like that. So um, just a a really great approach to policy issues. Um, And I mean, obviously, I'm biased because I've I started reading when I was really young. I I think fanboy is the appropriate term. but yeah, it's just a really great way to look at political problems. You want him to send a, send a signed black T-shirt that he that's yes. a signature <laughs> fashion item. Yes, he's always in the black tee. Oh uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Bjorn Lumborg, guys. Um, definitely an awesome interview. Uh, very cool to talk to him. And as David said, friend of the show, he'll be back. Uh, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Uh, there's a, a new poll that came out, David. This is uh, related to some stuff we've Ooh. mentioned in in various episodes, and this has to do with alcohol. More than 6 in 10 Americans are drinking about the same or even less alcohol since stay-at-home orders were implemented. Um, this is a survey that was commissioned, and it found that 35% of Americans are drinking about the same, 28% are drinking less, not being able to go out to bars and restaurants, being close, are the top reasons for people drinking less. So people are actually uh, taking health considerations into account. Most Americans, 86%, are confident that they drink responsibly and close to half reporting extreme confidence. Um, so essentially, you, you there were a lot of fears in the very beginning that people were going to drink themselves under the table every day throughout the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. People are going to go out crazy. You saw a lot of the headlines that we talked about in Newsweek, how uh, alcohol sales were up, I don't know, 300%. Uh, whereas I think you mentioned this, it all had to do, it had everything to do with stocking up and not to do with overconsumption. So it's, well, yeah. you, the numbers show us that people have not been uh, having more and people might actually uh, be taking on healthier decisions and drinking less during this time. Yeah. And when that was reported, it was just really sloppy analysis because they'll go, okay, well, sales at the liquor store are up X percent. Therefore, people must be drinking more. Well, just because you buy something at the liquor store doesn't mean that it's consumed 
in any defined time frame. I mean, you go buy a case of wine. Does that mean you're drinking 12 bottles of wine in two days? Or does it mean you're drinking 12 bottles of wine in 12 weeks? Um, and so obviously with the pandemic, people were trying to limit the amount of times that they were out in the store and were buying in bulk and keeping it at home and drinking at whatever their usual rate was. Um, and the big kicker here is that the only actual data beyond survey data where we can, we can assume consumption is bar data. Uh, because you know that if you buy a beer at a bar, you're drinking it. Um, that, that, that is a good indicator of the rate in which people are consuming alcohol. And so a lot of reporters and even people who were doing the analysis and breakdown of this failed to make a distinction between the two. And so there were all, all of these concerns in the, on the public health side of things that everyone was over drinking. And I mean, we've all seen the memes on Instagram um, which are always quite funny uh, in terms of <laughs> what what time is it? It's pandemic. It's pandemic o'clock. Okay, time for a beer. Uh, but it's I five o'clock somewhere all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's good to see that. I mean, the world didn't fall apart. People are not there. People are not rushed to ICUs. There are not like uh, dependency issues. It's it's adults when left to their own demise have not ruined life well, device, not demise they don't want sorry, a demise de on their own no sorry <laughs> Gunflight. whoops when whoops daisy yeah. uh yeah and that's definitely true and and uh, there's been a lot of there's been a grand push i think from many public health groups and and you know we've uh, we've become good friends or good enemies with many public health groups and a lot of our work advocating for consumer choice and we look at the dietary guidelines for americans uh, this is uh, something that just came out recently that looks at alcohol consumption and its relationship to all-cause mortality. Essentially, no matter what, how people are dying, what are the alcohol habits? And this kind of study, um, kind of predictable, talks about how those who binge drink are more likely to die in general than those who don't drink at all. And even those who have lower average alcohol consumption, though, um, you know, it, they don't really have the evidence to say that people who don't drink are healthier and live longer. So it's this kind of strange thing where everyone's saying, you know, everyone is uh, consuming too much alcohol. We have this. And even if you are drinking a little bit and you are responsible, it's still a risk. Uh, actually, you know, we're, we're hearing more and more. And there are more studies that saying that, and you guys see this all the time, every headline, that one glass of red wine is making your life better and longer. And I think that's that's kind of what we're getting. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of pushback from public health groups, but mm -hmm. we're uh, we're definitely out there on the front. Consumer choice is very important, uh, but also being able to look at the health data and the science is very important. So I have and, some good stuff and there. Can we can we please please let people drink outside? For the love of God, let them drink outside, like. This is, uh, did you see Andrew Cuomo tweet the other day? No, uh, he said something like, um, he's like, let me be clear. You can eat, yeah, yeah, you can do eat outside, but don't even think about drinking, something like yeah, this. Yeah, like under no circumstances can you have a beer outside. And then obviously he got ratioed on Twitter um, and just blown up. You, you, you <laughs> might need, you might need to, to define ratioed um, to our, Ra non, our non Twitter base audience. Yeah, for the, yeah, ratioed is usually when someone says something really dumb. You can tell that it's dumb because the replies outweigh the retweets and the likes. Mm -hmm. So it's people just directly replying and you'll see like 10,000 replies and 1,000 retweets. And it's like, ooh, he's getting roasted in the replies right now. And that's exactly what happened because everyone was like, come on, like three weeks ago, I'm ordering pitchers of margarita delivered to my door. And you're telling me that I can't walk through Central Park with a beer? Because heaven forbid we end up like those savages over there in all of Europe, <laughs> and and you can't. I don't even know if you can order it on the on the outdoor terraces. You know, he's this is a thing with Cuomo and this entire movement is really just nitpicking. You know, they're going to find everything that is the people are enjoying doing outdoors, and for some reason that's going to be more apt at spreading the Carol Baskins virus. I'm not sure. Uh, all this stuff 
really is unfortunate because it's stuff that you and I like, and it's stuff that you and the audience like, and it's things that really do not harm anybody. And if you're eating a salad outdoors, there's absolutely no difference with drinking or sipping on a beer. So there's a lot of alcohol well, stuff there. And did you see some of the restaurants start to troll? Some of the bars start to troll Cuomo's um, mandate that you have to serve food. Oh, I'm so sure it's like peanut butter jelly sandwiches or something. It's even better. It was a dollar menu. And it was so for a dollar and it was like nine fries. You get literally nine French fries or it's like grapes, six of them. A wow. dollar. <laughs> yeah. so, I remember those. Was, I remember those from my day in Montreal. You went into a bar that they didn't really have the liquor license. They could only do it with food so that you yes. just ordered a cheese sandwich for a dollar <laughs> and then you could order your beer. It was fine. <laughs> there are always just, ways to get around it. Yeah, it's just so silly. Like, get rid of these dumb laws. I wish that someone, I mean, the media has really fanned over Cuomo, who over oversaw the worst outbreak, one of the worst outbreaks in the world um, by almost every objectable measure. I think he's going to have some questions to answer about that um, after the fact. But I wish that someone would have been like, because he was like, if you are caught selling drinks for people to like walk out of the store, we'll shut your liquor license down. It's like, oh, okay, so just to confirm, we're not helping businesses survive the pandemic anymore. We're we're past that point. Like, yeah, now we're actively attacking them and making sure they never survive. Uh, yeah, I, I saw this on uh, on Facebook. There's a. I think one at Molly's Tap Room in DC, which is a spot that a lot of people yeah. that that I, that I know and you know have gone there. We've probably gone there in the past. Uh, they've had to shut down um, thanks to the lockdown. You know, they weren't able to make enough money. I'm sure they got behind on payments. You know, they have to pay mortgages too. Uh, sometimes they're not able to get these exemptions or extensions. And I think that in the fall, we're really going to see more of the repercussions when it comes to the small businesses. You know, because I'm. I have no doubt most of the small business owners right now are basically living not even paycheck to paycheck. It's just like they're living, you know, bailout to bailout, waiting on this government plan, or they've taken out another line of credit in order to pay their employees. I mean, it is tough out there. There's not the demand that, you know, there was months ago, obviously, both because it was government restricted and also because people are afraid to go out generally. And I'm, I'm kind of sad for that. You know, we're going to need not just small business Saturday, but small business Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in order to catch up. Because most of these small businesses that you and I adore that aren't owned by large corporations or, you know, large entities that are able to weather these storms, you know, these might go away forever. And this is the thing is we're starting to see in the data that trend, the reality of, of joblessness. So I saw this week, the Wall Street Journal was reporting that filings for jobless benefits rose for the first time in nearly four months to 1.4 million people. And this is as states are, some states are reopening. And so that's, that is the, the lingering effect of the lockdown is that, yes, the economy is starting to get back to normal and that's great, but what normal looks like is going to be different than what it did in February or January. And it's going to be a hard realization for a lot of people and a lot of politicians because the economic situation for, for folks on the ground is going to be a lot worse than what we thought. Um, you're, you're going to see restaurants never come back. You're going to see corporate real estate sit empty. You're going to see all sorts of things where, I mean, businesses that were just marginally profitable prior to the pandemic just do not have enough in terms of savings or capital to survive with restrictions at all. Um, and so you're, I think you're going to see another wave of, of joblessness as kind of reality sets in. And that just begs that, that leaves a whole different, um, a whole different world to navigate for policymakers because the question then has to be, how do we get people back to work, whatever that work is, as opposed to how do we just keep writing checks? Um, yeah, because... and it might, it'll come down to the checks. I mean, that's that's the big debate right now in D.C. 
Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of money, a lot of slush fund, a lot of, of I mean, there are so many articles that have come out, uh, Times and Wall Street Journal, about how you had people who were are essentially government contractors who were still working, still getting their job, you know, they're still able to get paid, and they still receive PPP loans. You know, they yes. had absolutely no loss of business, yet they're able to get that. Uh, there'll be a lot more to cover. Um, definitely next week, uh, we'll be able to talk about that a little bit. We've got mm-hmm. a special guest next week, Dr. Jeffrey Singer. We're going to talk all things Medicare, uh, yep. everything choice-related. Uh, super interesting guest, awesome guy, uh, another friend of the show. David, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, another fantastic week. Thank you to everyone for bearing with me alone uh, last week. Thank you to Yael for coming back uh, for this week's show. Um, As always, follow us on Twitter. If you are listening live on the radio, thank you. And if you are listening through uh, one of the various podcast apps, be sure to subscribe, uh, like, or rate, uh, depending on where you're listening to. So thank you for joining us for another week.